1: Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check.
2: On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how
1: it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat. Come to life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Go Extinct Faster edition. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. On today's show, Jurassic World Dominion is the latest in the blockbuster reboot. In this one, dinosaurs now roam the world all too freely. It stars Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, and various others from the very, very, very original, now de-extincted Jurassic Park. And then Jane Austen gets a wild and altogether, I think, lovely update in Fire Island. The movie was written by and stars Joel Kim Booster as Noah or our Elizabeth Bennet. We'll be joined by Vulture's E. Alex Jung for that segment. And finally, does uh, everyone marry the wrong person? So argues a New York Times opinion piece we will discuss. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hi there. All right. Shall we dig in? Let's do this. Ready. De-extinct dinosaurs have been unleashed into the wild, their wild, that is, which is our world. That's the premise of Jurassic World Dominion. We have various raptors nesting on our skyscrapers and sores of one kind or another foraging through our refuse. It's a pretty great setup. Atop this setup, we get an evil plot to corner the world's food supplies by a company that's sort of a cross between Apple and Monsanto. We also get the de-extinction of Sam Neill uh, and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. This one is like the first predecessor in the new trilogy. It's directed by Colin Trevorrow. It stars Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard. Let's listen to a clip. Now, as with a lot of these gigantic uh, blockbuster event movies, we don't really get to choose clips we do get the trailer we're going to play a piece of it in this piece you'll hear the voices of Laura Dern Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum all of whom were in the original Jurassic Park movies and they're back
0: humans and dinosaurs can't coexist we created an ecological disaster Ellie Settler Alan Grant You didn't come out all this way just to catch up now, did you? You coming or what?
1: We're racing toward the extinction of our species. We not only lack dominion
2: over nature, we're subordinate to it. Okay, Dana, I'm going to start with you. Humans and dinosaurs, uh, can they coexist in a giant blockbuster movie? What do you think?
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, let me just start off by saying, Julia, I deeply resent that you forced us to watch this after I escaped the bullet of not having to review this movie. (laughs) This is so bad. I I refuse to accept if either of you has any positive feelings about this movie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That it will permanently alter I my opinion
0: it. of your opinion <laughs> and i will, but I, I should also say going into it that i mean i i don't have a big connection to this franchise in the first place even the spielberg original which you know, i saw much far far after it came out it's not a movie i feel a deep emotional connection to although i understand why it made the splash that it did but this second trilogy to me is almost like the second star wars trilogy in terms of how much it betrays whatever there was good about the original franchise. The director of this third installment, Colin Trevorrow, was also the director of the first installment of the world, you know, follow-up movies. And I believe he, he, he wrote or co-wrote the middle chapter as well. So he's been, you know, one of the forming um, minds behind this whole reanimation of the franchise. And I'm sorry, but he's just not a skilled filmmaker. There are movies that are... <laughs> long and feel sort of roomy because of it. I was thinking of the Batman in particular, a, a recent blockbuster we all saw that we liked with reservations and all agreed was probably 20 minutes too long. There's a difference between being roomy and needing some trims and then the vast airplane hangar of boredom that is <laughs> Jurassic World <laughs> Dominion, in which I consulted my watch a- about every half an hour thinking it can't possibly go on. And by the end, I was just in that state of despair, like I will never have any experience in my life again that is not watching Jurassic World
2: Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to say, Dana, tell us what you really think Steven's is the very best, Dana.
0: I mean, I should say that even as somebody who kind of missed the boat on the first Jurassic Park movies, I get. I get what was wonderful about them and it was this sense of wonderment, right, which was expressed by all of those original actors in the in the first movie who are back for this one, Laura Dern, Sam Neill, and Jeff Goldblum, and this sense of kind of Excitement about the future, which is then, you know, disappointed by the kind of awful, cynical realization that there's this company exploiting the dinosaurs. This movie doesn't seem curious or excited about dinosaurs. In fact, there was a great review I read. I believe this was in Paste magazine where the critic said something like, if I had a child I hated who loved dinosaurs, I would take them to this movie because they would lose all their joy that they feel about this long ago, you know, lost world.
3: Uh, I totally enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> oh my God.
3: I mean, I can't say I enjoyed it because I will make any straight faced argument that it's good. But first of all, the movie's worth watching alone for Laura Dern's costumes. The sleeveless like coat. Ellie- I thought of
0: you, Julia, the long sleeveless blue belted coat. Uh-
3: hundred percent would wear everything in the movie. <laughs> like the sumptuous, it's like, Elle, it's like Eileen Fisher plus like sumptuous fabrics, amazing jewel tone colors. Like, I, I don't know exactly what kind of loot she's bringing down as a, as a genetic scientist at her university. But that was a, a beautiful wardrobe, um, very sumptuous, sumptuous science lady clothes. It's like a, it, it was like the science lady version of the chic art teacher auntie, outfit, I
0: think. Well, it's also anyway. a great example of layering, because if I understand it right, although this is very incoherently directed, so it's hard to tell, but I think this movie all takes place in basically one day and night, right? So she has to have this outfit that moves from, you know, around the world and through these incredible, you know, prehistoric environments and, you know, leaping onto helicopters or whatever, and she keeps shedding layers and having yet another chic thing underneath. Okay, we're done oh, with yeah, But, the, but the order. That,
3: that, that final, like, slub, slub jersey tee and her little antique locket, it works everything. <laughs> layer works it's just right, like sifting guys. back through the sands of time um, but 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 it's just a it, it is it's just an interesting document of how of what we require in terms of character and performance in terms of our blockbuster stars at this point and Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. And I've, I've really loved Chris Pratt and things. I'm not sure I've loved Bryce Dallas, uh, Dallas Howard in anything particularly, although I'm sure she's been good in things and I just haven't seen them. He, You know, he certainly can perform, right? Um, he can be really funny. I thought he carried Guardians of the Galaxy through, like, his particular personality and charisma in, in a specific way. But this franchise, the reboot of it, seems to have required, um, mm. you know, just not that much character performance and meanwhile jeff goldblum shows up and like wiggles his finger and wears transition lenses again the costuming throughout is really good
0: (laughs) see it for the costumes
3: but julia these 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 performers
0: you're mentioning that are so good are barely in it i mean jeff goldblum seems like he jetted in for one day to film a couple of scenes
2: and yet and yet i agree he's for the minutes that he's on screen actually introduces character characterization degree of at least subtlety or at least some layer just below the sort of jazzy surface you know uh, and suddenly it feels almost like a movie but you know a a couple things one is i totally agree that there seems to have been a kind of active self-deadening on the part of chris pratt in order to get his personality to fit into those, the stupidity of the script, the flatness and stupidity of the script. He, at moments, he seemed to me to be doing a George W. Bush impression. It just is so <laughs> awful. And, you know, I will say that I never liked this franchise going all the way back to the supposedly nostalgia inducing original, in part because Michael Crichton was just a f- fabulous cynic and it was constructed like something genetically engineered to please the most maximum number of people in a commercial setting. I mean, it's just like, you know, and then this t- the tiny patina of satire to redeem it. Um, and the, and the, the, but, the, but at the end of the day, it's Spielberg, you know, taking populist material to its maximum potential in the, in the original. I mean, you know, they're just, you know, I mean, to, to, does no one understand that if you put a camera on a glass of water and you haven't seen the dinosaurs yet. I mean, the lesson that Spielberg taught the world in Jaws is don't show the shark, don't show the shark, there's no shark. What shark? And you just build and build and build. And the same thing in that moment. He's got that little glass of water on the dashboard that starts to vibrate with the very distant footsteps of the dinosaur. And that's your first inkling. Not only that they exist, but how freaking big they are and what their relationship to the earth is. And, uh, you know, that's filmmaking, right? This is not this is anti-filmmaking. There was a moment when I thought, I actually want to do the math. On how many stupid things there are per beat in this movie, you know, and Dana, I have to say I'm shocked to discover that this movie takes place in roughly twenty four hours because it exhibits literally none of the virtues of unity of time or uh uh or place it's yeah just, no, this
0: is, it's it's that's what I mean it's incoherently directed yes. it's not just that it's not good or boring or something there's not it's almost like there's not. A meaningful temporal or spatial relationship between yeah. any of the multiple locations yeah. you know it has it just has a very kind of madly expensive and yet filmed in you know twenty four hours kind of feeling yeah
3: well, the other issue is they that with with your point about not showing the dinosaurs Steve, is they show so many dinosaurs all the time yeah. and the the promise of the trailer and the a potential appeal of this movie right is to be rise of the planet of the Apes of the dinosaurs, like the <laughs> end of the last one was. All the dinosaurs get free. And, you know, the challenge in the, you know, the the challenge for the franchise is you cannot then make it a horror movie where the dinosaurs are free and the human heroes are fighting the dinosaurs. Right. Because fundamentally, the dinosaurs are like cute and a source of wonderment. And yes, they're dangerous, but it's our fault. You know, like you can't make the dinosaurs the villains, So the dinosaurs have to kind of be the heroes or at least like for whatever reason, they couldn't follow the logic through. Of like, no, there just are dinosaurs everywhere, and all the scenes are the, you know, the the pterodactyls nesting on top of the Freedom Tower. I don't know if the pterodactyls are raptors, Steve. I feel like raptors are more oh. ground-based, but I could be mm. wrong. Sorry. And, um, but I wanted more raptors charging through the alleyways of Malta um, and fewer scenes where a Bigfoot showed up in the forest and then someone just like rattled off a series of facts about how big the dinosaur <laughs> was. Like, that's a dreadnought of something or something. And, oh, that's the alice. Oh, they shouldn't have put so many alphas oh, in this valley. God. And then the movie seems to think that we care about which of the fictional computer blobs wins a fight. Like a whole ten minutes of the final sequence is just like the various fake monsters fighting. And it reminded me of, I have, I know two people who were PAs, on Michael Bay's latest Transformers movie recently, on the set of shoots that was just like machines fighting on a bridge. Like it was like a sub shoot that had no actors because it was just all gonna be CGI. And I was like, oh, this is that. Like the part, <laughs> like somehow we've got by the end of the movie, because it's so scarecrow stitched together. We've got, like, nine characters. And and I I came out of it almost wanting to, like, play Jurassic Park. Like, the whole last half hour is just the nine characters running around in the dark. And then they have almost, like, a dance move where, like, something big comes their way. And they get into, like, a phalanx where you can see all of them in their outfits. And they stare up at the thing. (laughs) screaming and they, like, <laughs> they scream or then they just like look quietly and like hope it won't notice them and then they like scamper around behind the nearest overturned tank and, and then like assemble into their little dance phalanx again <laughs> like and they just keep adding people into the thing it's like the family picture they keep oh it's like oh your boyfriend's home for Thanksgiving I'll get him in the picture too come on come on like, Just it's so unwieldy so they're doing that for like 20 minutes um, and then and then they're just like and which of the big apex predators In this fictional valley is going to win. And then we just watch like three dark blobs stab each other with
0: variously shaped claws. i don't know i just thought it was hilarious (laughs) there's even a moment Uh, in one of those late dino fights where one of i think it's chris pratt somebody in the phalanx of people says come on this isn't about us and then they run off to whatever their getaway vehicle is and it's sort of like well why isn't it about you it's your movie (laughs) the screenwriter could have made it about you it is not inevitable that we have to watch a cgi dinosaur fight
2: no, no, yeah, and also I just, Julia, I just want to double back one point I really take is like they turn them into raccoons, they turn them into deer, you know, they're like pests, they're they're riffling through your freaking recycling and garbage. It just, you know, and of course they don't go for any humor at all. The whole thing is just po-faced nonsense. Um, Can I make anyway. a point
0: about that though? About the, the the presupposed world. I mean, the actual the setup in the first. 10 minutes or so seemed like it could have had some intriguing connections to, for example, climate change, right? I mean, COVID, the reality of this world that we're living in where there's sort of horrible things that we just live with and and tolerate – And the idea that, you know, we're some number of years out from the last movie and that dinosaurs are now just in the world as almost like pests could have been a really interesting setup for some, you know, social critique, social satire, some kind of allegory. And the movie completely abandons that by having everybody pretty soon converge on this, you know, enclosure where the dinosaurs are, where we're just on another island with no stakes. Right. I mean, it's just it's such it's throwing away everything that could have set the movie apart and made it interesting. It's like an anti-smart movie.
2: Okay, well, on that note, it's the new Jurassic Park movie. It's got Dominion in the title. It's only in theaters. It made a bundle of money. Julia loved it. Um, if, you've, <laughs> if you have uh, if you have an opinion about it, we'd love to hear it. Shoot us an email. Okay, moving on.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk business. And uh, Dana, what do we got?
0: Steve, we actually have three items of business today. It's a packed week at the Slate Culture Gab Fest. First of all, an announcement about an upcoming live event with Slate. If you want to get up to date on everything that's happening with the Supreme Court right now, and that is a lot of things, many of them very disturbing, please come to the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on Thursday, June 23rd. A lot of Slate's best writers about the judicial system and the courts, including Dahlia Lithwick, Mark Joseph Stern, Christina Cattarucci. The host will be Susan Matthews at the Slowburn, burn Roe v. Wade season that just started. Emily Bazelon. A lot of Slate. Old-timers and bigwigs will be at the Bell House unpacking all the Supreme Court news, and there'll also be a special live taping of the great podcast Slow Burn with the new season that just started about Roe v. Wade and the history of abortion rights in the U.S. Go to com slash Supreme to get your tickets for this event at the Bell House. dot com slash Supreme. Our second item of business is to remind listeners about the upcoming Summer Strut episode. This is our annual tradition here begun by Julia Turner, where we ask listeners to send us their favorite Summer songs, preferably something you can strut down the street to with it in your headphones. We compile all these into a Spotify playlist, and then, after listening to it for a couple months, we choose our favorites and talk about them during a special episode later in the summer with Slate's great music writer, Chris Melanfi. So please, if you have suggestions for the list this year, email us at culturefest at slate.com with the subject line, Summer Strut, that way we know where to put it in the pile and put it in the, in the Spotify list, And remember to include the name of the song and the artist in the body of the email. We are really excited to listen to these, so um, please get the, the list bulked up for us. Our final item of business, Steve, is just to tell everyone about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about an online debate that was flaring last week around the movie Fire Island, which we, of course, are discussing this week, after someone online accused the movie of failing the Bechdel test. Of course, many other people chimed in and said the Bechdel test shouldn't apply. The Bechdel test is nonsense. All kinds of arguments about the test itself. We thought that we would discuss the usefulness of the Bechdel test, quote unquote, which we'll talk about what that is, um, whether you're applying it to Fire Island or any other movie, TV show, book, et cetera. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that later in the show. And if you are not, you can sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and lots of other shows have those too. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. Please support us and all of our brilliant colleagues by going to Slate.com slash Culture Plus and signing up today. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, that was a lot of business. What's next, Steve?
2: Okay. Well, Fire Island is a sandbar off the Long Island coast. It's made up of endless beaches dotted with little seaside cottages. It's also been a gay mecca since at least the 1930s. The new movie Fire Island is many things. It's an homage to that island's blend of hedonistic escape and romantic longing as well as to the complex social politics within the gay community involving money and social class. It's also a love story modeled very sweetly and very archly on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, uh, as well as an attempt to redress the underrepresentation of gay Asian men across all media, not just the movies. There is so much to say about this deceptively small movie. It stars Bowen and Yang and Margaret Cho, in addition to many, in a terrific ensemble cast. Why don't we listen to a clip? In the clip we're about to hear, the main character, Noah, who's played by Joel Kim Booster, is talking to his friend Howie, played by Bo and Yang. Howie's feeling a little disillusioned about Fire Island. Let's listen.
1: Coming here was a mistake. I can't believe you talked me into this again. What the fuck are you talking about? You know what the only time I see you now is on FaceTime? No, I'm serious. We used to come here to be gay and stupid, oh. and now I come here, I just feel terminally alone. Alone? Look around. We're literally swimming in dick. No, I don't mean like that. I mean like, existentially lonely. I and mean here in SF, Never had a boyfriend. Oh, God. Monogamy industrial complex rears its ugly head. Listen, I've never had a boyfriend either, and I'm fucking awesome. Yeah, well, I'm not you. Yeah, well, you could be. All you have to do is get laid once in a while. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, why not? You're cute. You're funny. You're consistently the least repellent to men out of all of us. I mean, let me be your wingman. Everybody should fuck on Fire Island at least once. It's like our birthright.
2: All right, well, to discuss Fire Island, we're joined by E. Alex Jung of Vulture, the Estimable Culture site. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. You wrote a wonderful, uh, both critical and reported piece about the movie. It was terrific, and I hope people seek it out. Um, Why don't we, there's a lot to say, but why don't we start here? This is a really, really good movie uh, in my estimation. I loved it. Um, Can you describe Fire Island, the place maybe a little bit in the history of sort of gay iconography? And then let's turn to the movie and whether or not, you know, the movie captures something of its essence.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, it's been a kind of getaway for, you know, gay male New Yorkers uh, since the 30s. And then I think, you know, with the post-Stonewall disco era, it became a, a real hedonistic party island. You know, it's a, it was a place where you could go and everywhere you would just be surrounded by other gay men. So uh, I I think what what is really lovely about the movie is that it really captures that sort of spirit of, you know, what happens in Fire Island stays in Fire Island.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You you say something I thought very interesting near the top of your piece, which is that. You say, in as much as Fire Island is one of the first major studio gay rom-coms starring a queer cast, it's a film preoccupied with the inherent contradiction of gay liberation. The freedom of post-Stonewall sexuality is promised to some more than others. Talk about that and that specific aspect of the film, if you would.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, this this movie was written by Joel Booster, who I think is very perceptive of social dynamics and power dynamics, uh, in the world and also in the gay community, particularly. And, you know, if, if you don't know much about him, he's a gay Korean adoptee who grew up in the Midwest, um, to very evangelical parents. Um, and, and I think that if you are a gay Asian American man, you will sort of inevitably be confronted with this, uh, feeling of, um, diminishment you know? And I think that that, that is, that is always present. And I think that that is a constant negotiation. And so when you're in a place like fire Island, um, that is supposed to be this kind of playground or utopia of gay sexuality and freedom and drugs and all of these things, you sort of realize that that maybe you don't get to participate in this in the same way. And I think that that clip that you even played, um, sort of highlights that difference for, you know, a character uh, like Howie, who's played by Bowen, and how he experiences this place and whether or not he gets to just sort of be free um, as Joel's character Noah is.
0: Alex, and really all of you, I wonder if you had any thoughts about what this movie does with um, with friendship. I think my favorite relationship in the in the movie is the one that is not romantic at all between, you know, what would be the equivalent of Lizzie Bennet and her sister Jane in Pride and Prejudice, which is, you know, the Bowen Yang character and Joel Kim Booster's main character, who is also, as you said, Alex, the screenwriter of the movie. And uh, it seemed like this was something really unusual. Obviously, the the portrait of the entire community and of Fire Island itself is somewhat unprecedented in a mainstream rom-com. But I also, I loved that there was a mainstream Gay rom-com that has two best friends that are not romantically connected, don't seem to have ever been romantically connected, and yet, you know, I really think that their relationship and how it evolves is is the heart of the movie.
1: I totally agree. You know, like I, th- I think the fa- my favorite scene was sort of uh, the escalation of that argument or that uh, conversation that we listened to just now, uh, where they sort of tensions rise t- to the point of. I can't do this like you can, you know? And there was a real difference between how they experienced the world, which I thought was, I don't know. I've never seen that before, let alone any of this other stuff in a major movie.
0: Well, even the essence of what they're arguing about that we heard a bit of in that clip, right, which is sort of the value of a of what Joel Kim Booster's character regards as a heteronormatively framed relationship, right, this monogamous end of the the movie happy-ending love, um, the argument that they pursue throughout the movie about whether or not that is something of value and something that a human life or a romantic comedy should attain to is, is somewhat unusual within the framework of this genre. I
1: think that what is really interesting about what Joel did uh, with Fire Island was that he could take a kind of classic rom-com trope and queer it and sort of make it feel right for him. And I think that includes his own tenuous relationship to monogamy and all of those things.
3: I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the rest of the ensemble and the dynamics and also some of the, the villains. I mean, it's, I liked your language, deceptively small, Steve, because it's it's kind of an easy watch in a way. It, it's it's a snackable movie, but there are so many dynamics. There's a whole house full of multiple, like, evil, wealthy gay men who... Um, or whatever, of varying degrees of fatuousness and jerkishness. Um, and then there's the kind of crew of friends who's been going for years. And one of the things I really loved about the movie was the way it tracked the rhythm of a vacation and the sense you have of like, it's endless. I'll never be back to reality. And then, Oh no, time is ticking away. And am I taking, you know, the, the, the FOMO you can have for your own, uh, self and your own vacation and your own time. Like I'm having so much fun. Am I having the right kind of fun in my special week of fun? Um, just the, the savviness about the, the, Desperate rhythms of relaxation. I thought was something really interesting and smart about it that I didn't feel like I'd seen in quite the same way. Um, that sense of of the fun time ticking, uh, and then just the the social comedy. And this is where the the echoes of Jane Austen are particularly fun and pleasurable. Of you know the the detestably fancy neighbors. Uh, there's there's so much. Fun grist there. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that world sketching.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, Fire Island is like when you go, it's a bit of a ticking time chair. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like you you go oh, on beautiful. Thursday and you're like, I'm going to make the most of this time. Right. And, and so if you're a gay guy who's like, I don't know, so many people come who aren't from New York or aren't, uh, you know, like living in the city. And so there, there might be even more pressure to like make the most of it and to have this kind of whatever this idea of a gay party would be. Um, and I, yeah, I think that that element of pressure is, there's a highly sort of pressurized environment and then, you know, obviously everyone's rolling up Molly or doing other drugs. And, and so there's this feeling that like, maybe of magic too, where you can like suddenly meet someone and have this incredible romantic connection. But then also everyone is going to have to leave the bubble at some point, you know, there it ends and then what happens after it ends. And I think Fire Island kind of smartly just exists within the bubble. It doesn't really try to, You know, you don't really get much backstory on any of the characters. You just sort of are living in the world and living in the dynamics of the world. Um, and, And obviously, because of like weird property laws, you like kind of can't like build anything more on the island. So like whatever land is there is there, which also means that people who have the really nice houses, you know, those people are there and they also look a certain part and they have the right uh house and real estate uh and yeah i don't it's it's interesting how how well um things map onto um class dynamics like that
2: yeah i mean this is precisely what i loved most about this movie which is that i was a heteronormy who used to visit uh the heteronormy end of fire mm-hmm. island where we rolled you know with uh, gin and tonics and adultery instead and <laughs> And yet, what I love is, as in America, what everyone has in common is, you know, Yimby versus NIMBY, depending on who actually owns the legacy real estate. That's universal. And this is what I kind of adored about the movie as much as anything, which is that this is the best reanimation to me of Jane Austen since Clueless, right? Mm -hmm. And, And the reason is just this flash of genius at the heart of it, which is that, well, what's Jane Austen about, right? It's about eligible bachelors, country houses, and the relationship of love to economic power. And the idea that it needs to be radically translated into the gay community on Fire Island is laughable. In fact, (laughs) it was there all along and someone saw it. It's such a Eureka. And then what I loved was also the execution, which is the movie comes at you in, a, in an opening blast, right? It introduces you to this ensemble with their bickering and their backstories and it. And I was like, okay, I'm a little overwhelmed, right? But then the way it settles into itself and the precision of its comedy and social awareness and its ability, its characters and its own ability to lapse into con- contemplative repose almost in melancholy contrasting to the hedonism in the sense of the ticking timeshare. I really, I really thought it was a beautifully realized film.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I I love that description, Steve. I think the other thing that was a revelation to me in this film is, is just Joel Kim booster himself, who both has written something so precisely observed as you say, Steve, but like really carries the, I mean, the, the whole ensemble is good. And the, the, kind of the Bingley's and the Darcy's are, are fun too, but, um, it's an amazing performance and he really, you know, as is the case with the, um, the meddlesome best friend who just wants to get their kindly pal laid. Uh, he, he has things to learn and things to ponder as well himself. And the performance is Incredible. Talk a little bit more about Booster's career and and where this lands in it. It feels to me like a pretty major thing to do pretty early on in a way that makes me really excited to see all that's to come.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I think that he had to write this movie in order to get to show off what he could do. You know, like Mm -hmm. nobody... Mm -hmm. Was gonna make a movie, you, you know, even a generic movie about Fire Island or a, a gay rom com about Fire Island, and decide to cast him. Right? He he had to write a film that was, you know, rooted in his own experiences that he could um, that he could then play. Um, and I think that that's the the luck of and persistence of his career is that. He can finally do that, I guess. Um, He he started off mostly in stand-up. I think that's what he's known for. And he also, this is going to be a very big month for him because he has has Psychosexual coming out on Netflix, which is a one-hour special uh, in a couple weeks, I think, or next week. So, and he has like a, you know, a co-starring role with Myra Rudolph in her Apple TV show, Loot. So he's very much about to be present everywhere, I think. Um, but I think that these things are just a kind of culmination of his, of, of what he's been working towards.
2: Mm. All right. Well, in addition to pointing people to the movie, which I think we all agree they should see if they haven't, uh, I'd also like to point people to Alex's piece in Vulture. It went up on June 3rd. It's called Pride and Prejudice and Fire Island, uh, Alex Jung, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was terrific, and I really hope we um, do it again soon.
1: Yeah, I would love that. Thank you for having me. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I truly believe that everyone marries the wrong person. So goes the opening gambit of a uh, very provocative uh, opinion piece in the New York Times by Tish Harrison Warren. She goes on to say, if we as a culture view seeking personal fulfillment as a sacred duty, staying in an unhappy marriage is then seen as an act of self-betrayal. That's a characterization of the predominant attitude now towards marriage, unhappy marriage, and divorce. Regardless of what you make of her particular argument, some ways of betraying oneself also seem to resonate as a kind of social betrayal. So divorce wasn't back in the old day, just the failure of a marriage, divorce itself would be a social failure if divorces became widespread. Therefore, the individual bears some kind of burden unfairly in my estimation to the whole to the social whole anyway her observation which i think is true is now the logic of that has just been flipped entirely it's now perceived as a kind of social betrayal not to pursue your own individual happiness to the max anyway i found this extremely intriguing uh argument uh julia what'd you make of it
3: i felt that it was probably useful to some people for her to have written this piece, but it felt a little straw manny to me. Um, mm. Like, is there, in fact, a widespread culture that you have to divorce your partner as soon as you feel a moment's dissatisfaction? I don't know that there really is. I mean, I, I, I think she is talking about a real social phenomenon, which is that there is probably more of an assumption now than there was certainly 50 years ago that a bad marriage is worse than no marriage. And for, you know, centuries, that was impossible for women because women had, in many cultures, had very little way to be even a person in the world with property or money or means to feed them and clothe themselves and survive outside of a marriage. So it's, it's a very new idea um, that, that, you know, a marriage that isn't fulfilling is, is inherently a bad one. And it's probably worth pointing that out. But this piece suggested um, I don't know, a level of oppressiveness of that idea that felt slightly overstated to me. And I think we were interested in talking about it, along with some other recent essays in which people write very publicly about their dissatisfactions with their partners and what it what it is to write about love and marriage for a public audience, like that it, 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 you know what we make of those essays. there is something that is brave about it. Because it puts the reader, including me, in the position of of thinking, like, well, I don't know. That does sound like a tough marriage. <laughs> like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you want to stay married? That seems like a big slog. Um, but which is, of course, the whole point is that that she's finding the growth that is coming with her particular slog rewarding. So it seemed like a useful counterpoint, but perhaps one that slightly overstated the the prevalence of the. Uh, everybody get divorced idea somehow. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't love this kind of piece, this kind of, for one thing, it's so short, right? And what she reveals is so selective and calculated that I don't really feel like I know the background of why these two people aren't happy together and how I should apply that to my life or to life in general. And I don't know there's just I feel like there is there's something about this kind of performative my relationship is great kind of piece which ultimately is what this is even if she's saying all these quite harsh things about the suffering that she and her husband have gone through in the last 17 years there's still something a little bit sanctimonious about the way that she's holding up this portrait of this particular relationship as as you say Julia a model of what marriage should be or some kind of instructive Bit of morality. I mean, she says some things that don't apply to every normal couple's bit of of unhappiness in their lives. For example, that the pastor who counseled them before they were going to get married said that they should not get married and that her husband himself, who is an Anglican priest, would not have counseled a couple who had the disagreements that they had when they got married to get married. She has a sentence that to me seems alarming. One paragraph begins, The last 17 years have held long stretches where one or both of us was deeply unhappy. There have been times when contempt settled on our relationship, caked and hard as dried mud. Contempt is is actually a specific emotion that I've seen cited before in studies as something that relationships can't survive. You know, that if one member of a couple feels contempt for the other, really feels like they're sort of unworthy to be in the relationship, that it's very hard for that relationship to survive. I have no idea if that applies to these two people. But, I mean, there's some stuff in this article that does have a little bit of the tone of, I mean, she says right right out, we only stayed married for some years for the sake of our children and because of, you know, our religious beliefs. So, that doesn't seem like something that can be applied across the board to everyone to make, as you were saying, Julia, some larger sociological point about marriage. So I don't know. I mean, these kind of pieces almost never make me come away thinking, oh, I, I see my own life or relationship in a different way. It's It's a little bit mo- more like, well, sucks for you, lady, but I don't know what <laughs> conclusion I'm supposed to draw from it.
2: So the, here are the two aspects that interested me most. One is that, you know, well, what's the superego at work in any given age, you know, sort of at the social superego? Super and, you know, in, for example, my mother's generation, it was owing this, I think, horrendously burdensome field to, to the nuclear ideal of, you know, sort of, I mean, many, many aspects of it that are just screamingly anach- anachronistic now, the male you know, breadwinner and, uh, you know, female homemaker and just the gender division of labor and on and on and on. Um, But what I like about this piece is it points to what the possible new cultural superego is. And you could argue if you wanted to be a little, you know, nerdy about it, sort of under neoliberalism, which is that the fealty that you owe is so internalized. Um, It really is to your best self, this construct turns into right it's like supposed to be liberating you move toward this ideal you owe something to that ideal but it's actually it it has this structure of a very burdensome superego for many people and it's you know it's beset by the paradox of choice in the age of the internet when one is single you know you're on the internet and you're just constantly shopping across you know space and time which are unconstraining now to discover the exactly right person for you and so in a sense i liked the rhetorical extremity of it i think what i found interesting about it that i th- that i believe the author is not accounting for enough is you know that strange really dark wisdom of the frost poem road not taken which is what he says about that road is that one day i will justify my choice as if it were the courageous one Whichever road I take. <laughs> and that's this incredible act of like proleptic understanding. I know that I'll be this sententious fool 10, 20, 30, 40 years hence who will inevitably take the same consolation that others do. And as corrosive as regret is, this is like, it's non corrosive, it's very solacing, but it's, could be even more false in some elemental way than regret. I mean, she's telling herself my choice was the right choice in exactly the way the speaker of the Frost poem says, one day I'm going to do this, but don't believe me then. It's nonsense.
3: Totally. I mean, the piece, I think, has some interesting studies in it that show that for people who are unhappy, divorce didn't increase their happiness. Um, and, And that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm sure we are all... I think we all feel fortunate to be people who have not uh, gotten divorced. And I'm sure we all know people who have gotten divorced or who've considered getting divorced and have not gotten divorced. And it's it's super hard to do, you know, even if when it is the right thing to do. It's really disruptive and it's really confusing and it's really destabilizing. And, I mean, it makes sense that, that it's not a step to take lightly. But again, that's what sort of felt straw manny to me about it. Like it, it is true that there is a broader cultural be your best self imperative. I think that is the most interesting idea here. But it's not actually like everyone is going around being like, oh yeah, divorce, what a breeze. Nobody minds, the kids are fine. Like, yeah, it's really, it it, it is a big deal even if it's on the table in a way that it wasn't um, before. So that's what sort of feels... Circular about the piece somehow. Mm. I'm curious what your response is to people writing in a revealing way about marriages that they are in with living people. um, And also whether you can think of examples of writing about marriages that you are in with a living person that that you really loved and responded to and thought were wise and profound and didn't seem like a concatenation of facts intended to fill out an
0: op-ed. I mean, the first thing that came to mind, and this is, I haven't read this book, so I can't say which side it falls on, but I'm just thinking of that Heather Haverleski book that came out earlier this year. It's called Foreverland. And it's essentially, I mean, I get the impression that it's almost more of a humor book in a way, although I'm sure it also has some some self-revelatory stuff in it. But it's it, the subtitle of Foreverland is On the Divine Tedium of Marriage. And I know from you know the response in the press at the time, like The View Ladies were scandalized by it. It got a pretty negative review in the Times from someone who, you know, regarded it as sort of Posturing, I mean, but Heather Haverleski, I think, went really far. And that's the kind of writer she is. You know, she's a very self-disclosing writer um, in in exposing her husband's putative faults and her own, too, I'm sure. But, you know, there were the comparisons of her husband to a smelly pile of laundry and <laughs> essentially sort of like the, the worst kind of domestic metaphors. It almost seemed like very edgy Irma Bombek columns <laughs> or something like that. And uh, and people were really upset about it. I have no opinion about that book per se but the fact that it created that outcry made me think about this and i really think in general that i'm pretty turned off by this kind of writing like i almost never like the modern love column for the times it almost always to me has that slight scent of smugness you know of like steve with the the road not followed whatever road i followed is the right road and therefore implied the road that you too should follow so I mean, I wish I could say, give some counterexample of a person who writes incredibly about marriage and family life. I think maybe with writing about one's children, it's a little bit easier than writing about an intimate partnership that's still going on. But it feels really hard for that not to be a betrayal, you know. And I personally would, I don't think, I can't imagine a circumstance in which I would write unflattering things about my partner for publication while still hoping to have a successful relationship with them.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there there is often a posture when people do it that's like, my marriage is—I mean, whatever. It's always smug. There's no way to do it that's not smug because it's either like unctuous, like my partner and I love each other so much, or it's like my marriage is so tough and we're so honest and real that like I can just tell you about the laundry pile and you—you know—you—you you deluded sheep can't handle it. Like how honest my marriage is, and you—and part of the. <laughs> compulsion of reading is like they really seem like they're about to get divorced or maybe not i don't know maybe their marriage is on some astral plane you know like it's it's but it's all fundamentally performance and i i I guess i just feel sort of old-fashioned and square like or or fundamentally more a partner than an artist or something like i Mm -hmm. just it it's a private special thing i don't I don't want to write about it. And I sort of distrust the impulse to write about it in others in a way that's probably not fair to them and to the multiplicity of human experience. But
0: I want to hear, I hope um, listeners who, who have counterexamples of, you know, we'll know here is a great revelatory essay or book about a marriage that's still ongoing and in some way successful, that they'd point us to it. Because I'm sure it's out there. Obviously, it's part of human oh experience that can be written
2: about well. I You gave me the the greatest one of all time, maybe. James Joyce and Nora Barnacle right? I mean, it's from whence we get, you know, both Stephen Daedalus's and Bloom's relationship to Molly Bloom, right? I mean, like, and... I mean, she is Molly Bloom, right? In Joyce's mind, she was. Maybe not in reality or Nora Barnacles, but...
0: Well, if something's sublimated into a fictional character, though, does it count, I wonder? I mean, certainly, I'm sure there are yeah, people who have had point. successful relationships that have subsumed them into literature, but that's not the same as James Joyce saying, let me tell you about Nora and all her faults, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Man, Nora before coffee. Oof.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely get her after coffee in that last chapter of Ulysses, a bing But all right. This is one that uh, listen, <laughs> listener mail <laughs> will uh, will be just uh, a very rich uh, vein, I'm sure. But um, all right, shoot us uh, shoot us some text. Let's uh, let's move on. All right. Well, now is the moment in the podcast where we endorse Dana. What uh, what'd you bring in this week?
0: my endorsement this week is in honor of the late actor Philip Baker Hall, who the announcement of his death just came out the day before we taped. And he was 90 years old, so he had a good long life and a very long career as a character actor. Whether or not you recognize the name Philip Baker Hall, I guarantee you will recognize his face and his voice. He's completely one of those it's that guy character actors of the late 20th century who was in every other thing you can think of from, you know, Seinfeld to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature, Hard Eight, to... Oh, my goodness. I, I, he was on. He had his own sitcom, I believe. People are going to write in and tell me other Philip Baker Hall uh, cameos that they can think of. But he really was one of the, the great character actors of his generation. And last night, in his honor, I went back and rewatched Secret Honor, which is—Steve, you would be fascinated by this, I think— a 1984 Robert Altman film that's a one-man show. It's based on a, a play— with one character, which is Richard Nixon in his, uh, in his late years. It's Richard Nixon post-Watergate, basically getting drunk on his own in his study and kind of ranting into a tape recorder. Are you familiar with either the movie, the play, the concept of Secret Honor?
2: None of the above, and I'm, I'm going to run, not walk. This sounds so cool.
0: It's such a bizarre curiosity. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't entirely work. The performance is fantastic. The reason to watch it is because Philip Baker Hall as Nixon is just extraordinary. And and the script is really good. But it feels strangely theatrical and enclosed. The music doesn't really go with the with the action. There's something a little bit off about it and maybe a bit dated, but it's so yeah. s- such a strange oddity and so worth watching for his performance. And also I was thinking strangely timely in the same week that we're watching, or I'm anyway, riveted to the hearings about January 6th and the late kind of mad king days of, of the Trump administration. So in many different ways, a lot of things converge to make secret honor the watch of my week. And I should also mention, it's streaming all over the place, but if you watch it on the Criterion channel, the extras are incredible. I'm still in the midst of the extras, but there's a commentary track with Robert Altman talking through the movie, which is great. And, uh, and I haven't watched this yet, but there's also an, a little interview with Philip Baker Hall about playing Richard Nixon. So there's a whole package on Criterion if you watch it there. And if not, you can find it streaming on lots of other platforms. Secret Honor from 1984.
2: Uh, that sounds, that's just amazing. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. Well, I
3: think it's only fair that in a week when I um, primly complained that nobody should ever write about their marriage and in which I eagerly wait to be proven wrong by all of our listeners telling us about great essays about marriages, uh, that I reveal something slightly personal for my endorsement. I want to recommend today, I don't know even what to call it or if it has a name, but micro journaling maybe is the name I have. I Purchased, I think, both from Amazon, which feels like a sad place to purchase uh, so intimate a tool. Two things one called the five minute journal, and one called One Line a Day. And each of them has like different little formats that basically ask you to. The, the five minute journal has you like write a little bit in the morning and write a little bit in the evening, and it's like a little more self helpy, maybe. But the one line a day I think is really fun and I think our our listeners would enjoy. It basically just has you write one sentence a day and gives you like enough space for it that you can kind of get creative with your dependent clauses and your semicolons if you want to. Or you can just do something very short and declarative um, and it feels more like a little teeny tiny daily writing exercise than um, the other one, which is, as I said, a little bit more like self-helpy and, and me going full California. But I think there's just something about the oddness of a life that has you sitting at a computer all the time as mine does. And the feeling of time passing that, um, just has, has made me want to have a little bit of a recording impulse. I think maybe since my father died, I started doing both of these. Um, and But it's really hard to figure out how to do it. I've never really been a diarist or a journal keeper. I'm so much more fluent as a typist than I am in handwriting. Like I really find it hard to express anything fluently in longhand. It's like speaking another language. Like my hands just can't keep up with my brain. And so it's very frustrating. But then the thought of trying to keep like a typed journal is really – I like I'm spent all fucking day typing things, and I do not feel in a contemplative space when I'm looking at a screen. Um, and so I had I, I just the notion of like, okay, I can write one sentence in longhand today, and actually, it's really fun to write a sentence and play with all the different structures and formats that a sentence can take. And then you end up with this like interesting little record of the of the tiny textures of your days. Um, I'm really enjoying it. So one line a day. And the five-minute journal.
0: I like that. I wrote down one line a day.
2: All right. Well, uh, in the spirit of brevity, I'm going to do a couple of songs that I've been listening to lately. I love the phenomenon of the, co- I mean, the cover. Of course, everyone loves a good cover song. You know, an artist appropriating, but all, away from the original version, but also honoring it is pretty cool. Um, it, the best is, uh, to me, to my mind, is just taking like a song that's got virtues that have been overloaded with either false sentiment or bad production values, or I don't know, they're just f- too lachrymose or cloying, they're just turned into something that kind of ruins what might've been the heart of the song. There's a great version by Leo Nocentelli, who of the meters of um, the old Elton John, um, slightly lachrymose song, Your Song, which was I believe Elton John's first big radio hit. And uh, he just kills it.
3: I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind what I put down in words. How wonderful life is while you're in the world. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. He just turns it into such a great, great song. And then this is not a cover, but it's just what's been absolutely slaying me lately it is such the the band the apartments is the most underrated indie rock band of all time the lead guy was in the go-betweens for a little while but he was like (laughs) too downbeat even for them that's oversimplification but he moved on to do his own thing he's still going and um i just people should really give it a try he just you know Anyway, he has a song that I wasn't familiar with and there's a great live version of it called Live at Lubu is the is the album, L apostrophe UBU, because of course the French understand this man's genius. Um, and it's called Everything is Given to be Taken Away. No, it's just the dreamy melancholy poppy in both the sense of pop song and like the flower that you walk through and become dizzy and sleepy um, you know it's just so seductive uh, it's a great song check it out Julia thank you so much thank you Dana, thank you. That was this was fun. Really fun. It was a pleasure. Yep. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com/slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas bertel Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is nadira Goff. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.